0: I think we're just on the cusp of what we understand. And uh, so the brain, while we understand it partially, and there are definitely ways that we can manipulate it and and move it forward toward recovery, um, the the way that it really works is still a mystery. It's, It's beyond our understanding. But yet still we can work with it and we know things that do work. Uh, to try to restore their function.
1: This is a revolution to fight for truth, to fight for the people who trust us with their health, and to fight for research backed action. This is a fight to purge baseless trends and customs in healthcare. This is a revolution to change the steps of healthcare from reactive medicine to preemptive medicine. Our vision is to be the catalyst for a system of proactive healthcare versus reactive healthcare. This is Impetus Health. Alright hey guys welcome to Impetus Health. I am Sean Hill and this is my wife Ellie Hiller and we have very special guests today, um, Dr. Dennis Fell. Um, Dr. Fell is a medical doctor, he's an MD and a physical therapist. Um, his background is he's a physician resident in pediatrics for quite a long time, highly focused career on neurology and neurological rehabilitation. Um, he is the former chair of physical therapy at the University of South Alabama. Go Jags. That is my school as well. Um, yeah, is <laughs> um, the editor of... Uh, Lifespan Neurorehabilitation, a Patient-Centered Approach from Examination to Intervention and Outcomes that Focus on Evidence-Based Approach to the Neurological Rehabilitation of Adult and Pediatric Patients Across the Lifespan. Oh, I got it out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a textbook and I believe they're using that book right now at South. Is that correct? Correct. Awesome, awesome. being used in about 70 programs across the u.s wow. wow that is that is amazing yes and it's so cool to see your name on that but anyways <laughs> and, uh, vice president of the apta academy of neurologic physical therapy professor emeritus and professor of neurology and he was the chair when i was there my chair my professor um dr dennis fell thank you for being on the show It's my pleasure for sure. (laughs) I'm very excited about doing this. I was telling Ellie, um, when we were in school, uh, we had some awesome teachers, some incredible teachers, but Dr. Phil was always special when he got into Dr. Phil's neuro class because there were some really hard topics and things like the basal ganglia. Um, besides being in my brain are seared into my brain <laughs> because there was so much on that. But I remember, and it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I sat in the front row and I would, and we would all ask you so many questions, but we had this running thing. We were trying to stump Dr. Fell with a question about the brain and nobody could do it. We, I don't think we ever <laughs> did it. You always had a great answer to it. And um, it was just, it was a blast learning from you because you were so you were so knowledgeable on anything we asked. And it was a, a, you know, a lot of times people ask me a question and I'm just, I'm so stumped, but you never seem to get stumped. So
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. Maybe I'm good at hiding it or or, (laughs) hiding the answer later and then bring it back. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. And you would, but you would do that too. So you would answer, I remember
1: that you would answer it then, and then the, you would like write it down or, or idea memory, I don't know. But then the next class, you would bring it back up and say, Hey, I want to elaborate more on this. But mm-hmm. it, was, it was always very impressive. Um, but Dr. Phil, I mean, you just incredible career. In neurology and the study of um, how the mind moves and how movement goes with the brain and all the different intricacies that fall into that. And that's what we're gonna talk about today for those of you guys listening. And um, there's so many ways we could go with this, but I really wanna focus on just to letting people know what, what you know, how, how powerful is the brain? What can the brain do from a movement perspective? And we're gonna get into that, some of the questions. So I guess um, you're super accomplished in this space an education in healthcare, but give us a little bit of your background and what has been the driving force for you all these years in healthcare and in the neuro
0: field. Well, I guess if I go back all the way to the beginning, I'm one of uh, six kids and I was right in the middle of the pack or as close as you could get to the middle of six. And <laughs> I figured out pretty early that I, I had to do something to make myself stand out and um, kind of make my way and you know god gave me an ability to learn and a love for learning Mm. and so i just i just tapped into that and went with it and you know did well in in school and high school and then in college and that's when I, i did go to medical school uh even though i don't practice as a physician now i i have the medical degree and then just felt to to do something that was more focused on directly helping people through a process, not just diagnosis and medical treatment, but Mm. uh, that's what drove me. My wife, Noelle, was a PT at the time, and I saw the the real quality of patient contact that she had Mm. and fell in love with that aspect of really being connected with your patients. Mm. And so um, that kind of just propelled me into that healthcare arena first in medicine and then switching over to physical therapy because of that, that um, amazing connection that we have as PTs with our patients to be able to spend quality time over and over again while they're going through this rehab process, knowing that one day they're going to leave us. Yeah. But that's our goal is to get them back to an independent point where they don't need us anymore. And, um, I guess the other thing that has kind of driven me to learn and be the best that I can and you know, admit when I can't answer a question, but then go and find the answer as we were talking about is that I've discovered the best way to really learn something in depth is to teach it. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, Very true. <laughs> uh,
0: just teaching students and, and hearing the questions that you guys came up with, uh, that just drives me to a deeper level. And sometimes a student will say something and it's like something clicks in my brain that like, oh, that's how that fits with this. Yeah. Um, awesome. So uh, my family has been a, a hugely supportive force through that process. And and then the way God equipped me to to learn and to enjoy learning. So
1: love it. Amen. And I'm
0: still learning every day. I, I consider myself a a lifelong learner, which is one of the reasons I'm part of the APTA is to continue my understanding and, and grow in knowledge. Yeah,
1: I love that.
0: That's that's an incredible characteristic to have to
1: continue to want to learn. It's awesome. very admirable. Um, I, I couldn't help but remember uh, you so many things that we apply in the neurological field. And we're going to touch on this in a second, too. I remember we went over PD, uh, PNF you talked a a whole lot about proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. And um, I remember as I was going through this and I was always looking through everything from a strength conditioning lens. And all of a sudden we get into PNF and I'm seeing all these things that we, we, you, you do with a quote unquote neuro patient. We do the same things with a strength conditioning client. It's this, it's the same concepts. And you put me on a lot of the techniques that I use, with, with lifters or, or, or another quote unquote, an athlete in the gym, all of those same concepts all come back to neuro. Um, mm-hmm. and that was so cool. Like for instance, I think you might remember this, but I wrote a paper on RNT reactive neuromuscular training, which is a branch of PNF. <laughs> and we, that's something so commonly used. So it's cool to see all this, um, connected and, and, I'm jumping ahead. I'm so excited. But uh, so you were my neurology professor and you have spent most of your career in the field of neurology from teaching it, writing research papers and books. Why neurology? Why did you decide to put your efforts toward the brain and toward that
0: field? So I started off initially in pediatrics, but then so much of pediatrics is really neurology. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are orthopedic things, but a lot of it and the part that I really gravitated toward And then just over my career and uh, at the end of PT school, gradually shifted more toward neurology in adults. And um, uh, just a fascination with the brain. Uh, I mean, the brain is truly amazing. Uh, The capability that it has inherent uh, within it, the way it's it's created, the way it's made. The, The fact when I look at it from an embryology standpoint and see that Every human being, regardless of race or background or what country they're from or any other cultural thing, the sequence of embryology of the brain happens on basically the same timetable. uh, And it's very carefully regulated by the way our our DNA is made and, and, and guides that process of development. So I've just always been fascinated with the way it works. And then when I started to work with patients who had neurologic de- deficits from a variety of diseases or traumatic events, um, it, it just drew me in even more because I would see things that when you see it, it's almost like, did that really just happen? How did that happen? And, uh, and then you go back and think about it. and then And then to finally have the realization that we as PTs and OTs we can actually impact that. We can change it uh, through the experience that we provide the patients and getting them to do uh, repetitive activity and practice of the things that we want them to get better at, Mm -hmm. you know, motor learning happens. And in that motor learning, their motor control improves. And so you see an improvement in their ability to control movement, which then translates into their, Improvement in functional skills and independence in their function. So um, the, the bottom line is that we as humanity, you know, over the past centuries, we have learned and understand so much about the brain. And yet at the same time, we still have so much that we don't understand about the brain there's still so much untapped knowledge about how we might be able to change it. Uh, And you and I have talked before about, you know, BDNF and that was not even a topic, you know, 10, 15 years ago Uh um, among PTs, but when that research came out that showed that this brain derived neurotrophic factor, uh, it's a chemical that our bodies actually produce Some people genetically produce more of it than others, but it's a a chemical that is neuroprotective, but it also makes it much more likely that a brain is going to reorganize and change and have neuroplastic development uh, after the person has gone uh, through some event, some neurotraumatic event. Yeah.
1: So, you
0: know, we, we're, I think we're just on the cusp of what we understand. And uh, so the brain, it, while we understand it partially, and there are definitely ways that we can manipulate it and, and move it forward toward recovery, um, the, the way that it really works is still a mystery. It's, it's beyond our understanding. But yet still we can work with it and we know things that do work. Uh, to try to restore their function so mm. I'm hooked I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a nerd from way back and especially when it comes to to brains and the way right.
2: that's fascinating um just to kind of piggyback off some of the things you said about the brain now that I have you know the ears of the someone who knows so much about the brain <laughs> I just I want to throw a question out there and tell me if it doesn't make any sense but um Sean and I as you know are very in the strength and conditioning world um, food and nutrition all of that so when it comes to the brain as you mentioned neuroprotective like a I guess I interpreted that as kind of like the brain can tell us you know when we're and pain it can tell us if something's hot you know like take your hand off the stove right um, when it comes to like fitness, let's say an exercise um, at what point, when you're like kind of pushing past that level of pain or discomfort and exercise, at what point are we getting into a territory of, we don't need to keep pushing away these signals that the brain's telling us of like, you might be overheated or you might be in too much pain. You're pushing too hard. Like from your standpoint, from a neurology standpoint, at what point do we even have control over suppressing those signals or does it become unsafe? Does that make any sense?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think for somebody who's new in that area of aerobic exercise and really pushing the body to perform, I, I think probably the most important thing is to not start at number 10 at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You start somewhere at the beginning and you gradually work up to that point. Right. You know, your body speaks to you uh, as you go through that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's your brain working again. Yeah. You know, <laughs> It's monitoring you know, all of the chemical reactions that happen in muscles as we act. And so it's monitoring lactic acid and it's, it's, it's keeping a, a gauge of that. And if something's going wrong, if you're pushing too hard, it's gonna tell you. Mm-hmm. And so then we react to that and we say, okay, I'm not gonna push this hard for a little while, but I probably will be able to push harder again after I build myself up to that level. So again, the brain is, the brain is an important part of that. Um, And just being aware of that and having that self-awareness and paying attention when your body gives you those signals uh, Mm -hmm. to say, okay, maybe this is the level that I need to stick at for a while Mm -hmm. until this becomes comfortable. And then I'm going to push myself forward. It's, It's exactly the same principle that we look at when we're looking at progression of exercise and activity in patients with stroke or head injury. Mm-hmm. You know, we want them to work at that highest intensity possible. There's a ton of new research and one of the latest um, uh, clinical practice guidelines that have come out from the APTA Academy of Neurology is on the importance of intensity mm-hmm. in functional training. Mm-hmm. And so, um you know, that's been around with sports for a long time. But now the evidence is very clear that even in my patients with stroke and head injury and kids with cerebral palsy, that working at that high intense level is what's gonna bring about those neuroplastic changes. And BDNF that I mentioned a while ago is definitely known to increase in circulating concentration in individuals after, immediately after exercise. And if somebody does exercise regularly, uh, their baseline level of BDNF rises. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: especially if they have the genetic coding that makes them a person that is easier or more natural to produce BDNF. Mm -hmm. Can y'all
2: remind me what BDNF is again?
0: Brain derived neurotrophic factor. Okay. So it's a a protein that is produced our, our cells actually produce it.
1: Oh, wow. And the the cool thing about being BDNF is when you mentioned the high intensity, like we look at BDNF and especially in the neurological realm, when someone has had stroke or TBR or, or, and they're trying to return to movements that they did before. And it's such an important role in relearning movement. Like you heighten the BDNF, you're able to relearn movement at a faster pace if it was lower. Well, the same thing with the safety mechanisms, BNF plays a role. And where is that safe zone? Where is my safe zone? And and is it, you know, talking about endurance athletes shutting down those safeties to surpass it? And then you have heat strokes and things of this nature occur. Um, The high intensity thing is something that is so huge. and, And I want to touch on this a little bit when we're relearning movements. Um, the brain, and I want to definitely want to see, see what you think about this as far as that, we're going to talk about that six month window. Um, so I, I'll go ahead and jump into that and phrase it in that phase. But so after you have a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, something occurs, um, what we tend to hear is that you have that six month window of, um, I guess, neuroplasticity. Would that be a good term for that? When you have the increased ability to relearn things, um, from speech to movement to every different aspect, um. On that six month, is that still, and you're much more closer to this than I am, is that still accurate to say we have about six months of increased
0: neuroplasticity before it starts to plateau out after that? I think the word that you use that's key there is increased. Mm -hmm. So the the greatest amount of recovery, the greatest rate of recovery is gonna happen in that first six months. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that all of it's going to occur in the first six months. It's, that's just when it's happening the fastest. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I guess the, the studies that come to mind in that regard are like all the constraint-induced movement studies. When they did constraint-induced movement trials, uh, all of those early trials were using people that were at least a year after their stroke. They only used chronic stroke.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And with that very intense activity um, mode that they have, Uh, focusing on repetitive use and practice and feedback Mm -hmm. with the affected side, those people, even years, you know, some of them even five years after their stroke showed significant improvements according to the metrics that they were using Mm -hmm. to examine their motor control. And so, yes, the first six months is important, but I always make sure that my patients know not to discount expecting improvement. It's just not going to be as fast after that first six months. Yeah. But if you do something that's really intense like that, and, 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 that brings me to the point that it's not just about what I do with the patient in the clinic, but it's about what I do with them in the clinic. And then I'm only with them, maybe at the most an hour in a day.
2: Yeah. What are they and doing at home? maybe
0: there's eight hours. So what's going on those other hours. Mm-hmm. If they're not practicing the same things at home and doing things in, a, in an intense, but safe way at home, then what I'm doing in the clinic is not going to be as effective. Mm. And that's, so, something I'm, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so I, I, I just really always remind the patients, my patients to, to be sure that you are doing these kinds of things at home mm-hmm. And make sure they understand that without that home practice, without that, those repetitions during the other, you know, 10 hours that they're awake, if they're not doing something during that time, they're really missing out on an opportunity to, to prime their BDNF pump, if you will. Mm -hmm. I love that.
1: And that's something I wanted to have you elaborate on, talk with you to elaborate on a little bit, because I have so many patients um, through the clinic. We've been blessed to see a lot of patients who are dealing with these same issues. And some of these patients have been, have had it burned in their head. You have six months, you have six months. And that's just, it's just not true. We see incredible progress after that. Yes, your neuroplasticity is heightened, but because we can manipulate learning, we can manipulate from an intensity perspective from the environment we place you in manipulating that environment to to make you as adaptive as possible. Um, we see, we see some incredible things long time after the, that six month window has quote unquote closed. And, um, I think it has to do a lot with you that progressive overload. How do we progressively overload you? Are we adding in, um, aerobic capacity work? It's going to increase those hormones to give us, I mean, it ends up turning into this is where it's so cool to me. It turns into strength conditioning, the same thing you take someone through if they're trying to learn, if they're trying to add 10 pounds to a back squat or to a deadlift or maybe I'm a cyclist and I'm trying to PR my, my marathon time or whatever we're trying to do. Like it ends up being very similar concepts. We're able to apply those. We find the weaknesses. What's, what's weak. What is, what are the movements that we're not good with? Um, for instance, um, I have a, a client. He would not mind me saying this at all. He's incredible. He's um, he, that we actually had him on a previous episode. The bull didn't win. If anyone wants to listen, to that's a great podcast. But um he, and when we first started, I tested his whole thing was he wanted to be able to play in the backyard with um, his brother had just had a child he won't be able to play in the backyard with the kid when he got a little older. So we worked on certain things like a 40 yard dash. What is your 40 yard dash down time? So we tested it. And when he first started, he could not run three or four steps without falling over. And I would literally tell him, I want you to do it anyways. And I'm just going to catch you. <laughs> so we would do stuff like that. But now after, and that was month one, it didn't take us till about three months later that he tested that 40-yard dash and he's able to do it. He was able to run a full 40-yard dash in a pretty good sprint and working on things that really challenge him. I think, and you t- talked about that, it's the challenge. How much can we actually challenge you where we're getting the movement we want, And you're seeing that that relearning process occur. So, just want to encourage anybody who's listening. Like six months is we want to do as much as we can in that six month window. But after that, there's still so much hope. There's still so much that we can we can do at that point. Um, So, I just wanted to bring that up and and talk about that. I love that. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, the the reason that we have this whole podcast in the first place is um, because we wanted to talk about bring healthcare into the forefront. What's well, gonna kind of our big thing is that we want to make fitness those things we can really take care of on on an individual level. Fitness, nutrition, we want to hone that in and really start advocating for that being the ground floor of healthcare, so we can move away from some of these chronic issues that are there simply because we don't have those first two things honed in. Um, so, what are some of the things that you've seen through your career? You believe right now that um, that needs adjusting or changing in the healthcare field. You can go any direction you want with this, but what are some of those things that you've seen that you'd like to see change?
0: That's, that's a very good question. And one that, that needs to be asked across our country to figure out, you know, how do we move forward and how do we get better at what we do uh, from a system standpoint? And I guess the thing that I've been most impressed with lately is, um, you know, it, it's really important in healthcare that what we do is based on evidence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the yeah. same time, if you look at any well-designed study, it's gonna have a, a very well-defined population, mm-hmm. a, a group of people that are in some ways homogenous so that you can say at the end that either this intervention did or did not have a significant effect on people that are like this. Mm-hmm. And then we as clinicians have the challenge of applying that, especially in neurology, we have the challenge of applying that to people who may be the similar, but not the same, not exactly like that person. Um, so it has to still come back to uh, a patient centered approach, something that is more individualized for the patient. And so as therapists, you know, we always have to customize what we do based on what we see in that individual patient. Mm -hmm. From a healthcare system standpoint, uh, I think that um, getting back to grassroots is gonna be at least a part of that. And uh, I've been really impressed with, um, just in the past four or five years, and and you're a part of this too, seeing people that are are making a commitment. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> However, you want to do that. Let me just hang up on. Them. Okay, you found all do that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> putting in the support call. They just
1: keep letting it go.
2: Yeah. What's on point? We reached the belt resident. Sorry that we can't take your call right now, but if you leave like your name number. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> he ended on gro- We can start back on grassroots Yeah, I can I can find this easy.
1: Uh, <laughs> so where where should I start back? <laughs> I
2: the grassroots, I think, is what from a okay. from a healthcare system standpoint.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: You were saying what we were doing well.
1: Okay, we'll talk about that all day long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, from a, from a, a healthcare system standpoint, uh, it's really important that we get back to a grassroots level. And so um, you and your your clinic there in Birmingham and others that I know of, you know, people who who have an idea of uh, getting back into the community and doing something that's more directly related to people that you're right around. Um, so the bigger a healthcare system gets, the harder it is to keep it customized like that. Mm-hmm. And the more difficulty it has to keep things working smoothly and flowing in the right direction. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to see more PT-owned community, private practice PT clinics mm-hmm. that are operating really around the whole country. And um, a lot of new entrepreneurs like yourself who are looking at, you know, how does my calling in life fit with? what this community needs. How can I, how can I bridge gaps, you know, between PT but also fitness and and mm-hmm. eating healthily and uh, every aspect of nutrition. So put all that together and those kind of fresh ideas for how to get things done from a business standpoint, but also from a, a patient care standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and if that happens within a healthcare system, I think everybody benefits from it. I think the the healthcare workers benefit by providing in that environment, and certainly the patients benefit because of that personalized, patient-centered care that is directly uh, targeted and customized for what they need. Right. Amen.
2: Right. Would you say that fitness and nutrition? Um, w- would you call that healthcare? Do you hope it is healthcare in the future? Like, what is your perspective on on that, in, in terms of, I guess, the importance as it relates to the brain, physical therapy, all of that?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, especially. Um, I mean, it goes all the way back to pediatrics. So, mm-hmm. in in human development, you know, I have a, a brand new grandson who's just a month old now, and to see wow. to see him changing you know, week by week and how things change. And if he weren't getting good nutrition, yeah. that development is going to be impacted to the point that his motor behavior and cognitive behavior is going to be impacted for the rest of his life. Right. So it starts all the way back there, but then it it has to drive every healthy person in the way that they live their life. And certainly it has to drive recovery after neurologic injury. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that we emphasize in the PT curriculum at the University of South Alabama, mm-hmm.
2: that,
0: you know, you have to have, you have to have that nutritional support. And it's something that we need to screen. And if we find out that there's a problem there, then we need to refer that to mm-hmm. individuals, uh-huh. like nutritionists uh-huh. and dietitians that can help to, to fill that gap and give some real um, concrete strategies that the person can do to improve their nutrition so it's definitely a key part of being healthy and fit
2: yeah that's a good perspective even all the way back to you know early development it's it's cool because i mean when yeah. i meet people i only meet them in the, at the state they are then you know and you have to think about so many other factors that are playing into their health even from their development stages yeah. and so um, it's just fascinating
1: totally yeah. So what would you say are some things in healthcare that we're doing well right now?
0: Okay. I'll, I'll give you a little personal perspective here. Um, okay. you know, that, that my wife had colon cancer for five years and, mm-hmm. and died two years ago. Um, but going through that process, uh, we felt very cared for by the healthcare system that we were in. Amen everything from the nurses to the oncologists to the oncologic surgeons, the people in the hospitals, on the wards, everybody. Um, So that was definitely a positive, Uh, but there was still, and both of us are well-educated. Both of us had PT degrees and um, there were still times where even with all that, we felt ill equipped to make some of the decisions that we had to make. Mm-hmm. And, and some things that, that were told to us that we, we didn't really grasp the full impact of what it meant. So um, it's a positive, though, that I think in general, healthcare workers do a really good job of really caring for patients. Now that's certainly not hundred percent, but most people in healthcare um, make the person feel that they're cared for, which has to be there. That's an important part of recovery from anything. And then the other part of it is that, I think the other thing that we are doing well is that there is a lot of research that's being developed both from a medical standpoint and from a rehab standpoint to, you know, understand um, what is the best way to test things? What's what are the best outcome measures to use? What are the, the most appropriate interventions that we can provide for individuals with a certain uh, constellation of things that we found on the examination? Um, so I think that that, as a basis for developing new knowledge and then implementing that in the clinical setting is very, very important. And I think that the healthcare system in general is doing a good job there. Um, I would just carry that a little further and say, the thing that we need to do more of now is translation of that research into the clinical setting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so I know professional organizations around the country are working to try to find ways to get that most important research information into a form that can easily be applied and understood in the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. So those are the two things that I think from my own experience as the spouse of a patient and also for myself just observing physical therapy um, that I think the systems are doing well still room for growth always right because we yeah. always there's always something that we can do to improve right that's great that's
2: good well we're we're so grateful for the time that you've given us to be on this podcast and um we close the podcast with the same three questions or mm-hmm. not the same three questions every time we kind of tailor it to the individual so um, <laughs> it's, similar. It's, similar. it's similar same concept but we do want to ask you what is the best habit that you are currently doing that's having the biggest impact on your life specifically your health in any domain of health.
0: Okay. I think, um, I think that being intentional Mm -hmm. with my plans and related to my purpose in life and, and kind of keeping that at the forefront of my mind, Mm -hmm. um, and that includes, you know, decisions about my health. Uh, in the past couple of years, I've been much better finally at, at being physically active and, um, you know, riding bike or riding a stationary bike. Uh, even just in the past couple of months, I've started to do some yoga, especially for some stretching and to, to keep myself, uh, from getting tight. Um, so just, just not letting that just happen. But being intentional about planning, looking at where I am now and looking at what I want to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really applies to every aspect of our lives. So I would say that my best habit is just being intentional and planning for the future. And and that includes like my finances, too. You know, Mm I think Noelle and I were very intentional with our our finances over our whole marriage. And um,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so I think that's very important.
2: Love it great <laughs> okay
0: second question what are you reading right now okay um i guess my most consistent read right now is the bible um, it's um it's something that uh, you know gives us hope in difficult times it gives us answers when we only have problems mm.
2: um,
0: so that would be my most consistent read but the thing that I've been specifically looking at lately is a book that i revisited after a couple of years, uh, by Elizabeth Elliot. It's called the path of loneliness, mm-hmm. uh, which emphasizes not just the bad parts of being alone, but you know, what's the good that comes from that? And what, mm-hmm. how can it, how can it be used to strengthen your life? Uh, and she speaks from her own experience of, uh, her husband, actually, several husbands over her lifetime that died before she did. And yeah. how she dealt with that. So.
2: Wow. I've actually never never heard of that book, but I know Elizabeth Elliott. Um, I've heard of yeah. her. I've read a lot of her other books. So mm-hmm. that, I'll have to look at that one. scary. Cool. Um, do you have one quote we can end on? A favorite quote. It can be a Bible verse. <laughs>
0: um I would have to go back to the, the scripture again and in Jeremiah it says um, for I know the plans that I have for you and their plans for a hope and for a future
2: mm-hmm. so, so
0: the fact that regardless of what's going on in our lives there's always a hope for the future. I
2: love it.
0: That's so That's good.
2: In. <laughs> That's so good. Oh. Dr.
0: Phil, thank, thank you, you so,
1: so much. much. I'm going to hit the stop recording button, but thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the episode.
0: You are very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs)